text for the sermon is taken from the gospel. Blessed are the eyes which see the things that ye see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. The lion's share of this uh, gospel for today is probably the best known and certainly uh, the most exploited parable that Jesus ever told. This is the parable of the uh, Good Samaritan. Uh, the much, much loved bourgeois interpretation that rewards the title Good Samaritan every charitable act without the slightest reference to what is truly disturbing uh, in this story is, is, uh, is ignoring the context. Uh, sometime back, uh, for example, a student in New York City fainted on the subway tracks and uh, the newspaper uh, wrote that a quick-thinking Good Samaritan uh, brought the train to a halt before she was hurt. Uh, and as a matter of fact, it is against the law uh, in the Commonwealth of Virginia, a.k.a. Caesar, uh, uh, to not be a Good Samaritan. It's against the law not to be. Of course, you have to uh, let Caesar inform you on just exactly what a Good Samaritan is. Uh, but I'm not going to go on about that because I'm not going to talk about the Good Samaritan. I want to talk about the very first verse. Blessed are the eyes which see the things that ye see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things and have not. Uh, what was Jesus talking about? What had his disciples seen? Well, one of the first things that we can say about this is that it was a blessing, whatever it was. Blessed are the eyes which see. Furthermore, it is a particular blessing upon those who were actually there with Jesus and were, in fact, eyewitnesses. Are y'all with me? Who said that? Amelia, she said that. That's my granddaughter. Uh, his disciples saw things that prophets and kings had longed to see. Uh, this is a blessing that cannot be possibly extended to the whole church. Uh, other blessings that flow from real-time events in our Lord's life extend to the whole church in space and time, absolutely the case. Recall, for example, Thomas, who had missed out on Jesus' first resurrection appearance uh, to his uh, disciples in the upper room. A week later, Thomas was there, uh, and, and, he, and he saw the Lord, and he believed. That's what the text says. Then Jesus said to him, Thomas, uh, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe which would be us. The blessing of salvation is not a matter of being an eyewitness. Uh, those who saw him at the first Easter morning believed and are blessed with salvation. And those who have never seen him in the flesh and yet believe yesterday, today, for all time are also blessed with the same salvation. But the event that's preserved for us in the gospel today is not like that. Jesus is saying that those eyewitnesses are blessed in a way that only those who were at the right place at the right time have been blessed. Blessed are the eyes that see the things that you have seen. Uh, so this is an unrepeatable blessing, but we still don't know what it is. So what is it? What is it that kings and prophets had longed to see? And in order to discover that, we have to go back to the beginning of chapter uh, 10 of Luke, which preserves an account of the turning point, a huge turning point in our Lord's ministry, 
that has come to be known as the sending out of the 70. Uh, Jesus sent them out two by two into every village that he was about uh, to enter himself. And he gave them authority to heal the sick uh, in his name. And he also instructed them to tell the people, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Later on, when the 70 returned from their mission, they were euphoric. They couldn't wait to tell Jesus the good news. Lord, even the demons, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Jesus immediately provided instruction and very good pastoral care to his disciples. And he said this, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. I have given you authority to trample serpents and scorpions. I have given you authority to, over the power of the devil. But do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you. Do not fall under the spell of power. That's what Satan did. Instead, be happy that your names are recorded in heaven. And when Jesus sent the 70 out, he, in, he acknowledges to them in this that he said, Heal the sick and say to them, The kingdom of God has come upon you. By healing the sick, and especially by casting out demons, Jesus and his disciples gave proof that the kingdom of God had come upon the world. Starting right there in Israel with his chosen band of preachers and exorcists. In an argument later on with the Pharisees, Jesus would say, if by the finger of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When Jesus told the 70 he had given them authority to trample down serpents, well, when you hear that, you must be reminded of the same thing that they must have been reminded of, which is uh, what God spoke to the serpent in Genesis after the fall. I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed and it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Not only did Jesus, the seed of the woman, crush the head of the serpent, but he also gave his disciples authority to crush the serpents they encountered. Obviously the serpent in Genesis and here in Luke are not merely reptiles, but represent Satan and his angels. By giving the 70 his authority to join them, listen to what I'm saying, by giving his disciples the authority to join with him in the crushing of the serpent's head, Jesus is reasserting humanity's vice regency in creation. What do you mean? I mean that he is reasserting Adam's original position within creation of vice regency, which is a co-rulership with God. In Jesus' war against Satan, Luke 10 is D-Day. The 70 preachers and exorcists were the first wave of Christ's faithful soldiers, warriors of the kingdom of God, hitting the beaches. And that is what the prophets and kings long to see. Listen to what I'm saying. That is what the prophets and kings had longed to see but had not seen. The kingdom of God 
coming into the world, trampling down death and sin and hell. Now please note that it is the kingdom of God coming in the world, not the promise of the kingdom, not part of the kingdom, but the kingdom of God through Jesus and his uh, 70 uh, uh, preachers and exorcists coming into the world, a new and happy state of being has come upon all creation uh, through Jesus Christ. And all that the prophets and the uh, kings had longed to see has come and has arrived. The kingdom of God was surging throughout the world and the creature himself now has joined God in his war against the dragon. Now, listen to this. Now we get to the most remarkable thing in, in Luke. When Luke says, in that same hour, in that instant, at that moment, uh, he, Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank thee, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hidden these things from the wise, the understanding, and reveal them to babes. After hearing the report of the 70, Jesus himself in the Holy Spirit rejoices. When St. John wrote the book of the Revelation, he begins by saying, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And then John received revelation. But Jesus had no need to receive a revelation. Still his rejoicing is in the Spirit in the Holy Spirit. Now, this was a key moment in his ministry and his response, his rejoicing, reflected his own teaching to his disciples when he says, rejoicing God, not in power. As he contemplates the work of God in bringing his perfect will to pass and making man his co-regent, once again, Jesus suddenly, Jesus suddenly and profoundly is moved within himself, in his humanity. The word that's used here is so strong that it conveys the experience of exuberance and liveliness that would have been physically manifested on his face and in his body. It couldn't be hidden. It comes upon you as this joy came upon him through the Holy Ghost. What is described is a kind of experience that we have when laughter or tears or even laughter and tears overtake us. Jesus is no guru. Uh, Jesus is no detached Buddha. Jeremy Taylor, a great Anglican divine who was executed by the black-hearted Cromwell, uh, wrote, we never read that Jesus laughed, but once he rejoiced in the spirit. I think I think Taylor is too shy. Jesus' joy is a perfect natural human joy and at that same time a perfect natural supernatural, a perfectly supernatural joy. As a son of Mary, the Holy Spirit enables his very human joy uh, that cannot be expressed itself except in his body, upon his face, in his gestures and his movement at that time, in his spontaneous words of praise to God the Father in front of his chosen band. As God the Son, his joy is in that very acknowledgement of God's rule over creation. He is ecstatic. 
the Son of God has his joy is his perfect love and perfect knowledge of his Father. This sort of joy that seizes us, uh, it comes upon us usually uh, as a surprise. C.S. Lewis wrote that great book, Surprised by Joy. Jesus' joy is his knowledge and love of his Father and his Father's goodness and his Father's goodwill. A mother and a father, this is what it's like. A mother and a father rejoice like never before at the birth of their child. The birth of their child is not a surprise. Indeed, they plan on it. They contemplate they already rejoice over a nine-month period. But when the day comes and the child is born, their joy is released as though it were brand new and full of power. It's released upon the child. Their joy is released upon one another. And in some way, they can't stop. It's released upon all of creation. So it was with Jesus. The kingdom did not surprise him, but when it came, his human and divine joy was released upon all creation. The joy of the blessed Trinity released upon creation and released upon the persons of the Trinity so that the Father's joy is poured into the Son and the Son receives the Father's joy and he pours his joy into the Spirit and the Spirit receives his joy and the Spirit pours it back into the Father and the Father receives that joy. Jesus pours his spirit upon the whole world, especially upon his disciples. The experience of joy, physically manifested, is the experience of the word made flesh. He empties his whole life to the Father and for us, and his whole experience of joy uh, is physically manifested human joy he empties upon God the Father and upon creation. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. It is then that Jesus, after this experience of being moved by joy in the fulfillment of God's will, is then... Uh, that he turns to his band of preachers and exorcists and says, Blessed are the eyes that have seen the things that you have seen. Prophets and kings have desired to and have not. This is the context of the Good Samaritan. And that means that the Good Samaritan is not a story merely about being kind and considerate, which, by the way, are wonderful things. But the parable of the Good Samaritan is a kingdom parable, parable in light of the fact that the kingdom has come and Jesus' disciples have authority over evil and God has reinstated humanity's co-regency over creation. How are we to live? And that's what that parable answers, that question. It's not, uh, the story uh, is not, uh, who is my neighbor, but rather the story is, how do I live as a son or a daughter or a child of the kingdom of God? Story of the Samaritan, uh, he's living the new day in the kingdom while everyone else in the parable, the priest, the Levites, everyone else 
is stuck in Israel's past. So, what about us? Listen, power is not important. Be happy, not in power. Be happy in your baptism. Fight as Christ's faithful soldiers, yes. But be happy that you may do so because your names are written in heaven. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.